And if you would, please turn to the book of Jonah. We're in Jonah chapter 1, beginning at verse 17, and we'll read all the way down to the end of chapter 2. The words will be up on the screen, but if you are following with me in your Bible, if you go to the very end of the Old Testament and go five or six books back, you'll come across the book of Micah, and then before Micah is the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1, verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the root of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars close upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fading away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we, we pray this morning. Lord, your vision for the church, according to Ephesians 4, is that your church will reach the stature of the fullness of Christ. And this is not done by man-made efforts. God, so we pray that you would work through your word, that you would work through your spirit, that you would work in our hearts, Lord, to bring us this morning that much closer reaching the stature of the fullness of Christ. Fill us with yourself, Lord, and may we feed on your living and abiding word this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may have heard of the term double-mind or double-minded or the double-minded person. If you read the book of James, James uses this term to describe the person who is unstable in his ways. Interestingly, neuroscientists have also adopted that similar term in speaking about the human brain, how the human brain has a double mind, that is, two different minds. The first mind is the mind that's sort of driven by impulse, by passion, it's driven by the reward system. 
And then the second mind is the prefrontal cortex that is responsible for planning, for decision-making, for regulating behavior. It's sort of the self-controlled mind. The first mind, some refer to as the Homer Simpson brain. All passion, but no control. Both are absolutely essential in the life of every person. You need the one side, and you also need the other, both working together. And as one author said, there is no getting rid of Homer, just don't let him run your life. As we turn to the book of Jonah, one of the things that we saw, one of the things that we asked concerning the book of Jonah is, what is God like? What does this book tell us about the Lord? And last week, we learned from the book of Jonah that God is a God of providence, that he exercises control over all things, over all the universe, all the details of the universe, that he controls the details of human history, of the lives of individuals, and especially the lives of his people. And we also learned about the great compassion of God based on that first episode in the book of Jonah. A lot of decisions were made in that first chapter that led to sort of the tragedy that Jonah finds himself in in the second episode of the book of Jonah. And what we see here in the second episode is what we see is that it's the decisions or a decision that God has made with regards to his disobedient prophet. And so then, together, let's ponder this question of what the second episode teaches us about God. What is God like? What does this second episode tell us about God? And so for this episode, it's broken down in two parts. The first part is despairing but hopeful. Now, if you'll remember... Prophet Jonah was commanded by God to go to Nineveh to preach against it for its wickedness, and Jonah instead runs in the opposite direction. And this was more than just a, an impulsivity and a passion-driven decision, but we see also a lot of intentionality in his decision to run away in the opposite direction, intending also to run away from the presence of God. He rose, he went to a particular city, he went down to the city, found a ship, paid the fare, went into the ship, and went in the opposite direction, showing to us his commitment to his course of action, a, a commitment of disobedience. And then on his account, many lives were on the brink of death. He goes down to the ship to take a nap, and in the middle of that there's a great tempest in the middle of the sea, the, the the sailors toss all the cargo overboard, intending to spare their lives to lighten the ship. And it takes a pagan ship captain to take this prophet, to rouse him from sleep and call him to call out to his God. And at that moment, the prophet reluctantly confesses that he is the reason for this tragedy. And the only way that these sailors can be saved is if they take Jonah and hurl him into the sea. Reluctant at first, the sailors do what Jonah tells them to do. And the moment that they do so, the seas calm. In this particular episode that we looked at last week, we see 
some parallels to the gospel of Jesus Christ, namely, the one sacrificed to save the many. Right? Just as Jonah was hurled overboard into the raging sea to spare the lives of others, so Jesus also was sacrificed on the cross in order to spare the lives of many who call out to him in faith and repentance. And we see at the end of that episode in, the book, in chapter 1 of Jonah that these sailors, upon the seas becoming still, they turn to God, offering sacrifices and making vows to the Lord. They become God-fearers. And so that we come to verse 17 of, John chapter, of Jonah chapter 1, and we see then that in the middle of the sea, a great fish comes up and swallows the prophet. And then what we have is this prayer. And in this prayer, essentially what Jonah is, is doing is sort of describing death. I called out to the Lord, he says, out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Swallowed up and in the belly of the fish, he cries out to the God in the belly of Sheol, another name for death itself, into the deep, into the heart of the seas, the floods that God has orchestrated has swallowed up Jonah. And he even goes so far as to say that I am driven away from your sight. Jonah finds himself in a tragedy of his own doing. I mean, what would have his life been like if he had just simply obeyed from the very beginning? A lot simpler for sure. A lot easier, less tragic. But here he is having to be tossed overboard, left for dead, swallowed up by a great fish, and he seems to be somewhat certain that he might die. A punishment fitting of such a crime of disobedience? How would you answer that question? If you think perhaps that his punishment is too great, I'd say that you do not understand the justice and the holiness of God. In Romans 2.6, we read about the justice of God. It says, He, God, will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil. In John 3, 18, it says, Whoever believes in Jesus is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Jesus is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. In the justice of God, God renders to each one according to his works, but God has also determined that the only way to be saved and to be spared of his judgment is to look to the Son. 
God has said it so that if anyone desires to be saved, they must believe in Jesus and follow him and trust him and love him. And anyone who fails to do so commits an egregious sin against the Lord. For not believing in the name of the Son of God. I mean, this is why the gospel is not for those who are self-righteous, who can depend upon their own works to be saved, but the gospel is for those who understand and know that they, that they deserve worse, much worse than what they receive through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you take the Bible's description of human beings because of sin, I mean, it's pretty stark. It's pretty bad. This is why Spurgeon once said that if any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he thinks you to be. Frame that and put that in your house or in your office. Given the Bible's description of what we are like because of our sin, we are, in fact, deserving of the judgment and the wrath of God. So we look to the book of Jonah, we see Jonah's predicament, his situation, his tragedy. In a sense, he deserves that, and much worse. And in his prayer, Jonah describes to us what separation from God is like. In fact, Jesus actually has a much worse description Jesus himself adds that this particular place of separation from God is a place of gnashing of teeth and anguish. In other words, it's painful. The agony that Jonah is experiencing, that he's describing, is a sort of death. A separation from God, driven from the sight of God in this dark place, so dark that you probably could not see your hand in front of you, so dark that you could not even tell whether or not your eyes were open. And yet, even in such anguish, the prophet is filled with so much hope. Verse 5, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. So even though he's driven away from the sight of God, he still has this confidence that God hears his prayers. That God knows exactly where he is. That he has this confidence that in the middle of his despair, God will bring him up that even though the gates are closed, God can open those gates of darkness and bring out his disobedient prophet. Now, in reading this particular prayer and his description of death, you can take this in one of two ways. Either he sees the whale as his answer, as God's answer to his prayers, that here he is, in the middle of the ocean, despairing, certain death, 
and that God's answer to his prayers is to bring a whale to swallow him up, to save him. It could be that. It probably is in part that. But I think the prophet is praying this prayer in the middle of the belly of the fish, in this deep darkness, and that this whale who has swallowed him up only enhances his personal tragedy and only enhances or furthers his description of death. Not only that, but I'm persuaded by what Jesus says in relation to the prophet Jonah in Matthew 12, 38, Jesus speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. The Pharisees and scribes wished to see a sign from Jesus, but Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will a son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of of the earth. Jesus sees Jonah's tragedy as a precursor or as a representation of what he himself will experience, his, namely his going to the cross and then buried in a tomb, dwelling in deep darkness. Jonah's experience in the belly of Sheol is a description of Jesus' experience when he himself experienced death. Jesus, as he agonized with the nails through his hands and his feet in physical pain, at the same time crying out to God, My God, why hast thou forsaken me? In that moment, experiencing a much more painful experienced much more painful agony than the physical pain that he was experiencing, the agony of knowing that he has been separated from the presence of God. And ultimately then, his death and being in the tomb for three days. So this was Jonah's experience experiencing a sort of death and still expressing at the same time a confidence in God's salvation. Even though this descent of his was one of his own doing, from the very beginning of his disobedience, he went down to a certain place, went down into the ship, and then in that ship he went down into the inner part to take a nap, and ultimately he ends up down in the belly of Sheol. and yet not so far removed that God no longer hears him. So far removed from God's sight, and yet he is still confident that he will still see the temple of the Lord. Jonah ran from the presence of God, which is impossible to do because God's presence is everywhere, yet at the same time he was probably physically running away from the presence of God, that is the temple of the living God where God's people understood the presence of God to dwell in, as a means of God abiding with his people. Jonah intended to run away from that temple. Yet isn't it wonderful that no matter how far we go, God's presence is still there. 
that we can never run so far away from the presence of God that God's presence is absent. Someone had once said that he that has Christ dwelling in his heart by faith, wherever he goes, carries his altar along with him that sanctifies the gift and is himself a living temple. That's how the New Testament describes the believer, a temple of the living God, so that no matter where he or she goes, the presence of God is with them. That no matter how far into the pit of despair, that God can bring you right out. In verse 8, the prophet says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. This one Hebrew scholar who translates this passage a little differently, he writes, those who look to vaporous lies will turn away from their mercy. Those who put their faith and trust in vain idols who put their faith and trust in bank accounts, in prestige, in status, in their jobs, in security, in other people, whatever those things may be, do so in vain. Because ultimately, they cannot give you what you need most. And what we need most is the mercy of God. And the mercy of God only comes from God himself by putting your faith and trust in God. This is why the prophet is affirming the steadfast love of the Lord. Those who put their faith in the Lord have the hope of his steadfast love. God's steadfast love functions as a sort of bridge between God and his people that sort of expands and contracts, that no matter how close you are, no matter how far you go, the bridge continues to expand so that no matter how deep you find yourself in, whether it's a tragedy of your own doing through your own consequences and sins, or whether it's to a suffering that happens in your life, no matter what the situation is, no matter how far you might feel you might be from the presence of God, when you pray to the Lord, the prayers cross that bridge and enter into the very heavens, into the very throne room of God. So there's this confidence on the part of Jonah It's a helpful reminder to us that no matter the despair that you are experiencing, God hears and God listens. And this prayer, I think, is is a sort of repentance. He comes to the realization that he has done wrong. And it took this tragedy to sort of awaken him to that reality. And then he expresses a confident hope in the Lord. And there's a confidence that we have that even when we sin, even when we make mistakes, even when we cause tragedies of our own doing because we are driven by, perhaps even by our own passions, the great hope that we read here is that God will not turn away those who turn to him in confession and repentance. So is this what Jonah deserved? It is. And he deserved worse still. But here we see once again, as we did in the first episode, we see the great compassion of God. 
though his sins deserve far worse, God was gracious and compassionate to the disobedient prophet. In Lamentations 3.1, Jeremiah was a weeping prophet, a despairing prophet. And prophet who was suffering expresses this same confidence, this confidence in the steadfast love of the Lord. Lamentations 3.1, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness that the dead of long ago sounds very similar to Jonah's description of what he was experiencing. Then in verse 20, my soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. That is the hope that you and I have when we put our faith and trust upon the Lord Jesus. So there's the first part of this second episode. Let's conclude this episode with one more part, the salvation of God. Verse 9, but I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. What do we learn about God from this passage? What is God like? And we see once more that God is a compassionate God. That He's merciful and gracious. In fact, this is how God describes himself when he revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. A God of justice and a God of great compassion and mercy. We learn that God is a compassionate God in not giving the prophet what his sins deserved, but also even reconciling him to himself when the prophet turned to the Lord in the middle of his despair. The other thing that we learn about God from this passage is that salvation belongs to the Lord. What does this mean? It means two things. It means that there is no other salvation. Acts 4.11, the apostles affirmed this exclusivity of salvation that comes with the gospel of Jesus Christ. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, 
which has become the cornerstone, and there is no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That salvation belongs to the Lord means that there is no other way salvation. That your good works cannot save you. That your righteousness cannot save you. That you cannot purchase salvation. That there aren't multiple ways to heaven. That there aren't three ways to heaven. That there aren't two ways to heaven. But there is only one day, one way to heaven. There is only one way to be reconciled with the Father. There is only one name that is given among men, and that name is Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only means of salvation for the world. Jesus is the mercy of God. And if anyone would receive the mercy of God, they must come to Jesus in faith and repentance. There is no other way. The other thing that this means is that God saves whomever he wills because salvation belongs to the Lord. He is the one who saves. And he saves whomever he wills. In Titus chapter 3, verse 4, it says, When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Romans 9.15, God says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord is compassionate to whomever he wills. Why did God spare Jonah when his sins deserved much worse? He saved Jonah because he chose to, and he saved Jonah because he is a gracious and compassionate God. Later on, we'll see that at the preaching of Jonah, the Ninevites repent and they turn to the Lord. Why would God save a wicked nation? He did so because he chose to and because he is a gracious and compassionate God. If you're here this morning and you stand on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus Christ, why are you saved? It's because God chose to save you and because God is a gracious and compassionate God who is merciful. God saves whomever he wills. Research shows that the average person makes about 35,000 decisions per day. I would argue that that number is at least doubled for those who have young children in the home. This is why, at the end of the day, so if you have all good intentions towards the beginning of your day, you know, I'm going to get home, kids are in bed, and I'm going to do this, I'm going to work on this project, I'm going to do some reading, I'm going to read my Bible, perhaps, and you come to the end of the day, and all you can do is just crash, Decision fatigue. You've made so many decisions throughout the day that you are just dead tired. You have no more willpower to do the things that you actually want to do, and all you can do is sort of just crash. Homer Simpson has hijacked your brain. We can't, towards the end of the day, we are less likely to make rational decisions because we're so tired. 
Right? Some of you may wake up in the early morning and still are unable to make rational decisions. But no matter how energized, no matter how much sleep we get, we can't perfectly, we can't always make rational decisions, can we? When I look at this particular passage, when I try to think about what God is like, quite personally, I have a tendency to see God as God who is rational, who is logical, who is consistent, who is self-controlled, who is a master of himself. And I see God, I tend to see God in that way in part because those are virtues that I value in other people. But God is more than that. God is those things, but he is also a God of great zeal. God is also a God of great passion. And when you read and study the scriptures, we learn that God is passionate about two things. God is passionate for his own glory. And God is also passionate for the salvation of sinners. In God, we see this perfect balance. God chooses to save people out of sheer mercy and grace and compassion. The gospel tell us that Jesus was sent into the world. Why? Because God so loved. And love is not only a feeling, but love is also a choice. Because God so loved, he made the decision to send his son into the world to die at the hands of sinners, buried in the grave, and then rise from the dead three days later, that all those who place their faith upon him are saved and spared of the judgment of God. And the Gospels also teach us that he does this also for his own glory. Passionate for his glory, passionate for the salvation of sinners, He does this. For whomever he wills, the Lord chooses to be compassionate when he has every, has every reason to not be. Praise the Lord for his grace and kindness. So given that the Lord is a compassionate Savior who saves the undeserving then let us render a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving unto the Lord. In the Old Testament, God's people would offer up sacrifices to the Lord. And it was one particular sacrifice that was given voluntarily. And that was a sacrifice of thanksgiving. In Leviticus 7.11, it says, And this is the law of the sacrifice of peace offerings that one may offer to the Lord. If he offers it for a thanksgiving, then he shall offer with the thanksgiving sacrifice unleavened loaves mixed with oil, unleavened wafers smeared with oil, and loaves of fine flour well mixed with oil. With the sacrifice of his peace offerings for thanksgiving, he shall bring his offering with loaves of leavened bread. They were commanded to bring several different kinds of sacrifices to the Lord for cleansing, for purification, for the remission of sins, for the payment of sins. But the sacrifice of thanksgiving was voluntary. So you can bring this particular offering to the Lord as just a way of saying, thank you, God. 
And this took great effort. This took great intentionality. And it was costly. Right? I'm going to give unto God this voluntary sacrifice, something that costs me, something that is precious to me, something that I can use to feed myself and to feed my family. Instead, I will give it unto the Lord because I want to thank Him. Hebrews 13, 15 tells us, Through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Not just in this holiday season, but every day, we should make an intentional effort to thank others, to thank family members, to thank our loved ones, to thank our friends, to thank those who have been good to us. And to render thanks unto the Lord. Now we may not be required to offer this kind of an elaborate offering to the Lord as a way of saying thank you, but it does not mean that our thanksgiving unto the Lord isn't costly. It did, it does cost something of great value. And for us to be able to come before the Lord and to thank Him, it actually cost the very life of His Son, who was the sacrificial lamb, giving for the sins of His people. We can come to the Lord and thank Him. We can come to Him in a spirit and a heart of gratitude because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. And aside from that, even our thanking the Lord is still costly. Mostly it costs us our pride. Because you see, whenever we come before the Lord and we thank the Lord, we admit that what we receive comes from His generous hand. When we thank Him for our family, we thank Him for our loved ones, we thank Him for our finances, when we thank Him for whatever it is that we are thankful for, we are admitting to the Lord that you are the one who is the giver of all good gifts, that we receive because you have given And that ultimately, the reason we have anything at all is because God is generous and merciful to us. When we come before the Lord and we thank Him, we put our place in the position of dependency. We recognize the fact that we are dependent upon the Lord for everything that we need. And it takes humility to put yourself in that position. And it takes great pride to go for a long period of time and never thank the Lord. So whether you are like myself, who might see the Lord as maybe less passionate, or maybe you see yourself as, or maybe you see God as more passionate and maybe less of those other things and self-controlled and rational, whatever it is, however even you might perceive yourself to be, Let us make the conscious decision to be grateful unto the Lord. To give Him the sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving for all that He has done for us and especially for His giving unto us His Son, Jesus Christ. Though the Thanksgiving holiday is behind us, let us remain thankful for all that we have and all that has been done for us. And let us also continually give thanks unto the Lord for His gracious salvation. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He is merciful and compassionate to whom He chooses for His own purposes and to show forth His love. 
And if you desire this morning to be the object of his great compassion and mercy, then turn to the Lord this morning in faith and repentance. Trust in him, and you too will also be the object of his great grace and mercy and compassion. Let's pray. Lord, you are gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Lord, we stand here today because of your steadfast love that is always enduring and always persevering. And for that, Lord, we want to come to you this morning and we just want to say thank you. Thank you for this great salvation. Thank you for all that your generous hand has provided for us. You are a good God. May we continue to offer up a praise of thanksgiving to you, Lord. May we never tire of doing so. And we pray that you might press the gospel in our minds so that we might always remember to praise you by just simply thanking you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.